0: Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This summer, we are back in the book of Psalms. John Calvin rather famously wrote that the Psalms are an anatomy of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The Psalms sing high joys for salvation and the beauty of this world, and yet meet us in the low places as we cry out for justice and weep over the sorrowful state of this world. All of life, absolutely all of it, is invited to be laid before our Lord in the Psalms, these prayers and songs to God. So we'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon, and God bless.
1: We had some problems with our recording of the sermon for Psalm 58, and so I'm going to begin reading part of it, and then it will pick up where we were able to pick it up in our uh, tech recording this Sunday. Let's pray first. Our God in heaven, we're thankful for the psalms, even a psalm like Psalm 58 that uh, rubs us wrong at first, and yet it gives voice to something deep that each one of us knows and experiences, uh, the abuse of power in our world, uh, for selfish gain, um, to satiate certain unholy desires. And and God, we... uh, We know the experience of singing this prayer in our own hearts, and we pray, Lord, that even in studying it uh, today, you would so uh, move in us that we might see that you invite us to pray these kinds of prayers to you. Lift us up in this study, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now I want to begin this psalm. Uh, by saying that somebody asked me this week why I became a pastor, and I have lots of different answers for that question. But this week, probably because I was studying Psalm 58, uh, my response went in this direction. I was taken back to middle school and to high school, and I I said that I remember really early on in those times, clearly thinking that even if I wasn't a Christian, I would want to study the Bible. It's wildly interesting, and it covers so many topics, and it spans so many genres. Uh, one could study it for so long and never feel like you kind of get to the bottom of it. And that was part of the appeal, even of becoming a minister, was just simply the opportunity to study Holy Scripture more and more, and and to sit under it and to question with it and and to learn from it. But one of the aspects of the Bible that has always struck stuck out to me is the fact that it's so real. I mean, it speaks to this life, and it never glosses over the mess. Y'all have heard me say this quite a bit. It never glosses over the mess. It doesn't make life out to be some experience of constantly wearing rose-colored glasses and singing walking on sunshine if oh, yeah, we're walking on sunshine or or songs like good 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 vibrations it doesn't let you do that just wear the rose-colored glasses and sing the sunny songs while that's true it also doesn't sort of allow us to just dismiss the beauty every single person we're told is made in the image of god There's loveliness and glory. There's a resplendent majesty at times in this world. And you can't brush it off. You can't throw it away. You can't just move towards despair. And the Psalms, well, the the Psalms give voice to these soaringly high and deeply low emotions. They give voice to the glory, but also to the anger They are songs full of alleluias, and they are battle cries for justice. And so there are psalms that we're told that were sung to the tune of Doe of the dawn and lilies. But also these psalms that we are in, Psalm 57, 58, 59, they are set to do not destroy. And these are raw psalms. The Bible is full of honest-to-God language. David has been fleeing. He's, he's fled time and again, fled from Saul, fled from Saul's leaders, fled from people who he thought would help him. He's fled from people in places of power. He's fled from people who were supposed to rule and to rule with justice and love for the people under his, their care. Uh, he's fled from people that were to be imitators of God. God, of course, being the great ruler, and those who rule on earth being like little gods, pictures of him reflections of him there to pursue the well-being of his of their people they're to give their ability for the sake of others they're to extend love with the power that they have there're to rule with justice and with righteousness on April 4th in 1991 just a little over 32 years ago a Colson gave an address in at the Harvard Business School. Uh, not long before that, the Harvard Business School had established the chair of ethics because they recognized a need in more American leaders uh, for a greater sense of ethics and a greater understanding of morality and business and leadership. And when that was established, Colson had actually written about their commitment to philosophical relativism, Relativism, and he said that philosophical relativism actually precluded, made null, their desire to teach ethics. But they invited him and and he came and, and he spoke about the prevalence of leaders who have abused their leadership. This is some of what he said at the beginning. It's awfully hard not to watch what is happening on the political scene without a certain sense of dismay. Look at the Keating Five. Five United States senators tried, in effect, by their own tribunal, just before that, Senator Dave Durenberger, who happens to be a good friend of mine, was censured by the Senate. I also spent time with Marion Barry, the former mayor of the District of Columbia, who was arrested for drug use. And in South Carolina and Arizona, scams in the legislatures have been exposed by federal prosecutors. I saw a press release in which the Department of Justice boasted that last year they had prosecuted and convicted 1,150 Public officials, the highest number in the history of the republic, they were boasting about it. And I read it with a certain sadness because it seems that kind of corruption has become epidemic in American politics. We've seen congressmen one after another, Colo, Wright, Frank, Lukens, both sides of the aisle, either being censured or forced out of office. We see probably the most cynical scandal of all, the HUD, the Housing and Urban Development a scandal where people were ripping off money from the public treasury that was designed to help the poor. Then we've seen more spy scandals during the past five years than in all previous 195 years of American history combined. People selling their national honor for sexual favors or for money. Business is not immune. The savings and loan scandals are bad enough on the face of them, but the fact that they're, they're so widespread has fostered almost a looters mentality. Ivan Bosky, speaking at UCLA Business School five years ago, said, greed is a good thing. And he ended up spending three years in federal prison. Just last week, one of the major pharmaceutical firms, this is 1991, okay. Major pharmaceutical firms was fined $10 million for covering up violations of criminal statutes. It affects athletics. If you picked up a newspaper this week, you saw that Sugar Ray Leonard has just admitted to drug use. He's been a role model for for lots of kids on the street. Pete Rose spent time in prison for gambling. Academia has been affected. Stanford University's President Kennedy was charged with spending $7,000 to buy a pair of sheets. And Chuck Colson says, they must be awfully nice bed linens. But for your sake, I I did the math, actually. I I googled it, and $7,000 in 1991 is about $15,000 today. So $15,000 for bed sheets. Here's his, oh, Here's And charging them improperly to a government contract. One day, a Nobel Prize winner was exposed for presenting a fraudulent paper, and the very next day, a professor at Georgetown University was charged with filing a fraudulent application for grant from the National Institute of Health. Probably saddest of all, at least from my perspective, are cases of certain religious leaders like Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker, Baker, whom I've also visited in prison, was prosecuted for violating what should be the most sacred trust of all, to speak for God and to minister to people in their needs. What's he doing? He's just listing all of these leaders in almost every sphere of life, government and public service and business and athletics and religious leaders who are abusing their places of power. I mean, here's the thing, right? It may be vogue in vogue right now to say, hey, you do you. Do what makes you feel good. But um, I guarantee that every single one of us cringes at the thought of somebody who is in a leadership position, a place of power, abusing it for their own good, their own gain. On Friday, I read about a physician in Wilmington, North Carolina. He was fined $170,000 because he has continued to prescribe opioids to a single mother of four again and again and again. And what do, do doctors take? They take this oath that said, I will do no harm. I mean, it's laughable to think of this quote from 1991 and the pharma- pharmacy companies being fined $10 million. Um, last year in 2022, Johnson Johnson, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, all pharmaceutical companies, paid $26 billion in fees. Because of how they promoted the opioid crisis. I mean, y'all know about the Sackler family probably. The Sackler family actually um, was protected from lawsuits because of a settlement where they paid $6 billion. Because of all the death. Because of their greed and their corruption. Um, Maybe some of y'all know of uh, John Moran, the guard for the Memphis Grizzlies. He was recently suspended for 25 games by the way, he makes about $300,000 a game. But he was suspended by the NBA because of on, on his social media, he's wielding guns in nightclubs. This is somebody that kids look up to. He's a leader. Um, just this week, I watched a little bit of this new Netflix documentary on Hillsong Church. If you've seen some of it, you've maybe heard some of the extent of the cover-up cover in the Assemblies of God Church in Australia and in Hillsong throughout the years of Brian Houston's father, the, that, was the, that was the guy who founded Hillsong, his father, Frank, and how they covered him up year after year and year would put him in greater positions of power, Le, you know, invite him to speak at huge conferences, all the while, while people knew that he had abused young children. Last year, the Southern Baptist Convention lost over half a million members which is by far the most they'd ever lost, because it came out how extensive their cover-up was. Uh, We assume now that most political leaders are in it for themselves. We see it all the time. We've seen again and again how often church leaders and pastors abuse their authority. They're in it for their pockets, to satiate their lusts, Why do I spend so much time talking about this? I mean, I'm I'm like three-sevenths done with my sermon. Um, Because I know that probably like me, there was a part of you that cringed at the reading of this psalm. I mean, we read words like this. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Anybody else just like their palms are getting a little sweaty just hearing that again? What's going on? Here's the thing. You gain nothing. You gain nothing at all by denying the real nature of this world and your experiences in this world. You gain nothing from it. As one commentator said, fear, hurt, anger, and the desire for revenge are elements of our lives as human beings. They are. And we have to be confronted with our full humanity and, and the nature of this world. And what we cannot do, what you cannot do, Is pretend that some sort of real spiritual experience. Real spirituality. Is just brushing all that aside. You gain nothing from doing that. Nothing at all. You gain nothing from that kind of vapid spirituality. Because. You are right. And God knows it. When your blood begins to boil with anger when you learn that a church in the name of Jesus doing work in the name of Jesus has covered up scandal after scandal after scandal you're right to have your blood boil and God knows it you're right to have clenched fists when you hear that public officials working for HUD We're stealing from the very coffers that we're supposed to care for the poor. You're right to have that. That should be your physical reaction. You're right for your jaws to tighten and your teeth to grind. When you hear of companies, massive companies, with the most well-paid lobbyists in the world covering over The death of thousands upon thousands as they promulgate this opioid crisis. Killing family after family and community after community. Listen to this, okay? This is verse 1 and 2. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. Now, we're not totally sure how to translate that word gods there. It's L-M. It's, uh, it's related at least to the word for God, gods. Um, if you have different, some of you I know bring Bibles with you to church. That's a good practice. Maybe you're looking at that and you have a different version in front of you. And you might see that some Bible translators translate it rulers or some of them translate it judges. What's really obvious though is that these are people that are in places of power And at the very least, they're supposed to be like little gods. They have certain power, and they're supposed to exercise that power over their sort of domain. And in exercising that power over their domain, they're supposed to reflect God. Supposed to judge uprightly. With justice, to rule with equity and love. They're to represent God. And David says, you don't decree what's right. You've not done justly. You've not pursued righteousness. Instead, you devise wrong and you you deal out violence. Um, If we continue on and look at this, what we would see actually is that we, um, they've kind of lived this way throughout their life. This is what verse 3 says. and uh, What we we see in verse 4 is that they kill, it um, says they deal out venom. They prey on others. Um, and they don't listen to correction. That's what's happening there in verse five with the adder. You know, um, it does not have ear, uh, does not hear the voice of charmers. It's not willing to be corrected and guided and, and led. So what do you do with it? What do you do with this situation? I, I just listed how, oh, gosh, I don't know. Considering Chuck Colson's and my own examples, dozens a couple dozen examples for you of this world that we live in where people abuse their power, their godlike power for their own selves, for their own coffers, or for their own lusts. What do we do? I suggest three kind of major options. The first thing that we do, or at least we're tempted to do, is to bury all this, just like stuff it down. Uh, let me explain. Okay, we do this in a couple ways. One, here, here's the problem. There's a problem in our modern world, right? And that's the, we have so much information coming at us. And so we see it again that somebody else has abused their position of power. It's just on a news feed and we're like, let's bury that story and keep going. Don't deal with this. Bury it down. Or um, it hits us so much and we and we feel such despair and Sort of a hopelessness over this state. People seem to just take for their own good if they're able in these positions of power. Um, we bury it with activity. We just kind of try to forget it and to stuff it away. Or we, or we cover it over with a, uh, sort of a substance or something that we can just sort of forget it. Just forget it. Bury it. We don't want to deal with the fact that this is so prevalent in the world. So Abusive. That's one temptation to bury it. Another temptation is uh, to deal out the violence yourself. To bring the vengeance upon these people. To meet greed with greed. Violence with violence. I, I don't know how, how you can possibly hear or um, view the abuse of power in the world and not actually just get angry and it kind of hit your body and you want to lash back out. I mean, the anger's got to go somewhere. Where it often goes is vengeance. And we hear Jesus tell us to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us and to bless those who curse us. Um, but it seems maybe like it's too much and something needs to be done and violence needs to be brought to violence. We hear Paul tell us to not repay evil for evil and we kind of wonder if he's living under a rock. Where are you living? Okay. I think that this psalm is telling us a third way here. It's inviting you into another option, okay? And... um, it's just simply this. To trust God in the midst of these kind of tyrants. To trust him that vengeance will happen, but it's for him to deal out. Uh, many of you know who Miroslav Volf is. He, uh, he's at Yale now still. Uh, he's a professor of, of theology there, and he also is the director of their Center for um, Culture and um, Faith. Faith and Culture. Um, he's Croatian, but he lived and had a lot of experiences through the genocide that p- happened in Yugoslavia. And so he speaks about violence very personal, personally. This is what he, he says in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says this, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. How are you going to bless ins- instead of curse? How are you going to not repay evil For evil. These things that Jesus and Paul call us to. Let me read this. Start this over. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have. Whose cities and villages have been first plundered. Then burned and leveled to the ground. Whose daughters and sisters have been raped. Whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them. We should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. He's saying violence actually thrives under the idea that God will not execute divine justice and divine vengeance. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence— that God would not be worthy of worship. If God doesn't deal with this, why would you worship him? If God does not actually care about all of the injustice and all of the abuse of power, why would you worship that God? There are are 40 imperative petitions in the Psalms wishing the destruction of an enemy. Some of you know how violent they can sound at times, but there's 40 times in the Psalms where the psalmist wishes violence upon an enemy. I I would guess that for most of us, we cringe at those. We read them and we cringe and we think, how is this in the Holy Scripture? But I'm suggesting to you that those words and those calls and those Psalms are actually inviting us into the greatest act of faith. It's an act of trust. They're not allowing the abuse of power and the violence of this world to be brushed off. Don't think about it. Bury it. And they're not really allowing for you just to say, I'm going to exercise violence here. Not really inviting you into that at all. Now they're an act of great trust and a great faith in God that maybe he actually cares for this world. Maybe he actually longs for things to be put to right in this world. Maybe he doesn't turn a blind eye to the abuse of power in his own name. Maybe he'll do something about that. These Psalms are saying, God... Act. God, this is up to you. They're saying what this psalm says. We want the violent teeth of those lions broken. That's verse 6. God, we want them to fade away like water and snails slime. That's verse 7 and 8. God, we want such leaders to have never existed. Like the sad, sad state of a stillborn child. He's not commending that kind of experience of a stillborn child. He's saying we wish that this violence would never exist. He's saying, God, we want you to do this quickly. Don't delay. That's what verse 9 is saying. Now, I do want to end the sermon. This sermon, I want you to tell you how Amazingly enough, Jesus actually didn't retaliate at the violence that he experienced. Which is absolutely amazing and wild. He trusted himself to the Father. But I think it would be wrong of me to to go through this psalm and not highlight that this is actually a psalm of David. Somebody who had lots of power. And somebody who abused that power. I mean, somebody who took his power, and he broke up a family and killed a father, sought his own desires, sought his own pleasure. And there's a dynamic at play that is remarkable because here's the thing. Every single one of everybody in the world has been given, given power to some extent. We, we all don't have the same power as the people that I've listed, but you all have power in some extent. And what the Bible tells us is that there's not one who is not a sinner. The, which is to say, you, you too, and I too have taken some of the power that I've been given and not used it wisely and good, with, with good intentions and justly. We've abused the power God has given us. The temptation is just to look in this psalm at folk, Like Frank Houston or Jeffrey Epstein or these people who have so much power and grab it. But the reality is that each one of us have used our own little power for our own good. and For the the harm of others. That's what the scriptures would tell us. And that means that every single one of us needs the washing away of our sin by the blood of Jesus. That is what you need. That is the only hope for you, is that Jesus himself actually went to the very place of violence and said, this is not the way of the world. I'm going to go right there where violence seems most intense, where power is being grabbed by religious leaders, civic leaders, putting God himself to death so that they might grab and abuse their power. And it's actually when Jesus goes to that place that he begins to bring the redemption of the world where we confess that our sins are washed away. Man, like a couple weeks ago, I don't have my last page. Let me me paraphrase what Chuck Colson ends this uh, talk with that he gave at at Harvard. What Chuck Colson said after listing all of these different ways that people abuse their power, is he said, you know, I do the same thing. I do the same thing. And the only hope for this world is Easter Sunday. Because even this, Jesus goes to the place of the cross, the place of great violence, and he doesn't retaliate. And he dies to take on the violence of the world that is promulgated by Satan, sin, and death. But if that was the end of the story, we would think let's all despair or let's bury it all. It's too depressing or we must execute vengeance. We must take on the violence. That's what would happen if Jesus just stayed dead. But you know what? There's resurrection. There's resurrection. Which is God saying, that violence does not have the final say. It doesn't. It's God saying, I'm going to do something one day, finally and fully, that you would never imagine. That your hearts are aching for and longing for. That your bodies are reacting towards right now, desiring God to act. God in Christ in the resurrection on Easter says, I will do it. Vengeance will be mine. And there will be a day when there will be no more sighing or tears or crying or pain anymore. Easter is just the first fruits of the resurrection of all things. And God will bring it about. It's so the question, I have a few questions for you. What do you do with the violence of the world? What do you do with the anger that you experience? The Psalms are inviting you to, to feel it, to express it. What do you do in the midst of tyrants, the abuse of power? suggested to you that Psalm 58 invites you to trust the Lord. Trust him in a, in a place where you think there's no way. David has been fleeing again and again and again from people with strength and with power. David says, trust the Lord. Trust him. Good Friday is not the end of the story. The violence that we see is not the end of the story. The abuse within the church is not the end of the story. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. that's good news. Amen? Amen? Lord, God, I pray that we will not turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to the abuse that we see in the world all over the place. I pray that we would decry, especially the abuse in your church that we hear about so often. God, I pray that we would walk in the way of Jesus and be obedient to you, Lord, who... That we would be those who bless those who curse us. That we would turn the other cheek in the midst of a violent situation. That we would be those who pursue peace. God, uh, we ask you to act, though. Just like David did. God, we pray especially for the church that sees so much abuse of power, money grabbing, and pursuit of pleasure. God, put it to death, please. Bring to an end corrupt pastors and corrupt church leaders, corrupt politicians, corrupt businessmen, and corrupt companies. We lay these things in your hand, Lord. God, we thank you for the cross of Christ and the blood that was shed there at Calvary that washes away our sins. We bless you, Lord Jesus, that though you could have called the host of heaven to do away with these people that were grabbing for power to the extent that they would kill you, you still took upon the violence of the world and brought your peace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We lay this world in our hearts that are at times full of joy and at times full of anger. We lay it all before you, Lord. Give us faith, God. Give us faith in this world to follow you in the midst of such tyrants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.